This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Before half past 12 today, going to be catching up with the oh, two Western Australian beekeepers and their thoughts on the Varroa mite, which has infested a number of premises in New South Wales. Now, the total at the moment, 250 sites affected. And the plan in New South Wales is still sticking to eradication rather than a management plan. So a couple of different opinions from the beekeepers on the Country Hour today. One thinks stick to that plan, eradication, and another saying, well, you know, I think time is now to really start looking at a management plan. We'll get to that before the news headlines at half past 12 today. A little later this hour, heading off to Newdigate. It's about 380 kilometres southeast of Perth. It is the big field day event Day one today, and we'll be catching up with reporters Tara DeLangraft and Sophie Johnson, who have um, lined up a couple of local farmers just to get a sense of how the season is shaping up in that part of Western Australia. Six past 12. And over the last few months or so, the price differential between genetically modified canola and non-GM canola has really closed up. And this week, the price was exactly the same, with both trading for around about $800 a tonne. Now, that doesn't happen every day, with non-GM canola usually trading above the GM varieties and at times trading more than $100 a tonne more. Mark Adams is a grain grower at South Stirlings on the state's south coast. Mark, when was the last time GM and non-GM canola were trading at the same price? Um, I don't think I've seen it before, as in on par. So what usually is the the price difference between the GM and the non-GM canola? Well, like a lot of things in farming, there's not a lot that's usual, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we, we see variations of up to, in some years, what, I've seen it out as wide as $100 a tonne um, variation between GM and non-GM. So at, right, right at the moment, it's... Um, it's a good marketing opportunity for GM canola. Mm. So the it's usually the the price of the non GM canola is usually higher. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, gen, in general terms, you'd be talking twenty, thirty, forty dollars a ton as the difference between the two. As the difference, yeah, as the difference between the two. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, I mean, what does that do for you then, as far as your marketing of canola? We we market our crop throughout the year and you know there's a percentage we we market prior to harvest so we pre-sell um where we're not 100 percent sure of our production numbers but this pricing structure at the moment with the par on canola is lending us to price more gm canola and possibly if we short fall short of production for some unforeseen circumstances hailstorm or frost or something we can um, back out some non-GM canola into those contracts, I believe. So at your place then, what's the split, the percentage split between the two? Uh, we're about a 70-30, so that's 70% GM and 30% um, non-GM. 
And why do you do that? Why do you sort of dabble in, in both? Probably the main reason is weed management and um, some of the new clearfield hybrid varieties are probably on top of the GM varieties at now. So there's a pre- there's an extra yield benefit by growing on GM um, hybrids. But, um, yeah, it's all about um, rotations and sustainability and weed management and chemical selection. And how are the crops looking then, Mark? I mean, where, you know, at this point in the season, how is it shaping up for you across the, the canola and your other crops you've got there? Oh, I don't want to say it too loud, but we were, we were actually a little bit wet in um, June and July and the very variable start in April and May. So just like a lot of the other state, we've got issues in the reverse of being a little bit too wet or have been, and we've got issues with early sowing crops being really good and late sowing crops being cold and wet and, and got a bit of catching up to do. So I'd say, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at average. Our crops have certainly made vast improvements in the last uh, three or four weeks and canola's looking pretty good and prices are good both in canola and um, cereals. Wheat prices, you know, barley prices are, you know, between 95 and 100% decile for the last five years. So, you know, it's um, that's going to certainly boost our um, seasonal financial income. And with the prices then, do you want to just go through the list for us? Because we said, you know, canola is pretty much the GM and the non-GM on par. Where is it sitting at the moment? Well, I think yesterday it was around, around about $800 for uh, canola, both GM and non-GM. And that's been there for a couple of days. Um, canola prices have been heading north, you know, for probably um, a couple of months. And that's been driven by the northern hemisphere, soybeans, and also probably the the whole Australian crop is probably not looking as good as it was last year. And, you know, probably there's going to be quite a bit of a shortfall and that's pushing wheat prices domestically up as well. And the lifting of the barley tariffs into China has certainly made a big difference to the barley. Mm, where's, where's that trading at the moment? Have you have you checked the barley? Yeah, so barley we we we've been selling barley, and um, you know we can we can get sort of three seventy a ton for feed barley, and you know plus another sixty if we, if we meet a malt specification. So that's that's as good as good, good as barley ever gets, um, or good as it got in the past. And you've seen that change directly after the the change to the tariff going into China? Uh, Yeah, the biggest impact was after they announced it. There was probably some factoring in prior to that, but, you know, it's just been heading north, so I guess that the traders have been trying to buy a bit of cheaper stuff, but um, with their margin, they've probably been able to push the price up. And I believe that Canadian canola was trading at a premium of around about 50 US to Australian barley at the, the time before the tariff was lifted. So the Chinese were certainly paying a you know a large premium to get Canadian canola. Australia has a, has a fairly significant freight rate to China from a barley point of view. So they can, they, they can certainly afford to pay us, um, you know, at least probably 50 or $60 US, which is, you know, another 70 or 80 or $90 where the exchange rate is now. So we could, you could, we could, we could quite easily see feed barley prices getting, nudging up to close to 400. What, is that best ever? Where does that rank? 
it'll be get, getting up there yeah. as a best ever, yeah. And and the with the canola at eight hundred dollars a ton. I mean, we've seen that heady heights around a thousand, haven't we, in the past? So yeah, that's get, pretty good. You get um, quite dramatic movements in canola, and when there's a world shortage of vegetable oil, or the the traders think there is, you can get some pretty big movements. I mean, even even back. In June, July, we, we, we were seeing 70 and 80 and $90 a tonne movements in any one day, so both up and down in canola prices, so that made it pretty difficult to work out whether the market was heading south or heading north. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, eight, $800 is um, well, well and truly above the um, average long-term average price, and as soon as, as, soon as there's a shortfall, it can, it can go to, you know, the sky's the limit. I think the $1,200 was there for one or two days um, when the war broke out. So, yeah. And where's, where's wheat? How's that travelling? I oh, know wheat's pretty pretty strong as well, and that's driven probably primarily due to the crop conditions in Australia, and that's trading, that's trading well above $400 a tonne now. Well, the prices are lining up quite nicely as, you know, Australia heads to harvest time. I guess, unfortunately, not everyone's going to be able to, you know, has the crop and the yields to sort of take advantage of that this time around. No, that's right. I mean, the props, the crop commodity prices will help compensate the, the lower yields. But you know, unfortunately for sort of guys who are not going to get you know very little, that's um, not going to be much re- recompense for them, and they'll be disappointed they've been out, missed out on these um, good prices. Mm. Now we're going to talk about the the reasons behind you know in particular the canola prices, the GM and the non-GM on par at the moment and the reasons behind that. What, why do you think that's the case? Mark, have you looked into it? I haven't really, but I got a little bit of an insight yesterday at the CBH forum in Katanning, but it sounds to me like there's a lot of crush canola going into crushing plants in Canada, which have been a big world exporter of canola and they're all pretty much GM as well. So those markets that were buying canola exported from Canada um, don't have that same access to that canola as it's been consumed domestically, and that's been consumed domestically more around biodiesel. I think that you know Australia probably needs to look at a um, a solution and an and, a, and, a, and an incentive for you know multinational company to come and do the same here in in Australia and set up a uh, biodiesel crushing plant put some biodiesel in our fuel and um, that might uh, help their emissions targets. Yeah, well, that's a, a good business opportunity. Yeah. All right, well, well, we'll watch this space. It might be something you take up with a few other farmers, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep an eye on you then. No worries. Hey, thanks for the chat. Thank you so much. Bye. Mark Adams, who farms at South Stirlings. It is 16 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And taking a closer look at grain markets now. And if you've got a question, now is a great time to shoot it through on the text because we have Dennis Vosnesensky here. He's a senior grains and oil seeds analyst with Rabobank. The text is 0448 922604. If you've got a question about the grain markets, shoot it through right now. Uh, there could be a, uh, an opportunity in the next few minutes to ask that question. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Dennis, is Mark on the money? Is the price gap between GM and non-GM canola has it disappeared due to Canada crushing a lot of canola for biodiesel? 
Yeah, it has closed up, and I think there's a couple of interesting reasons. The first one is that in Canada right now we're seeing drying conditions, so the crop production in Canada is likely to decline. They're going to move into harvest soon, or in some areas they've already started harvesting. So firstly, exports are likely to decline from Canada because it's poorer production. But secondly, uh, yes, that crush capacity is expected to increase. So if we take a little bit of a step back, Canada usually produces on average around 20 million tons, 10 million tons of that goes to the domestic market and 10 million tons goes to the export market. At the start of early 2024, there's meant to be an extra 2 million tons of crushing capacity that's coming online in Canada. And that means 2 million tons less. That's, for example, going to compete with Australian canola in that export market. So it is part of the driver. Yeah, it it definitely is. The, The other thing is that in Europe, they've had a good crop Uh, compared to the last couple of years where it hasn't been so great. And we've been exporting a lot of our canola, a lot of non-GM canola, uh, to Europe. So that's satiated their demand. And in in fact, it's gotten to a point where I saw European canola in the last couple of weeks, a shipment go to Canada, which is quite funny to think about because a lot of our canola has been going there because of that all those sustainability policies and that biofuel demand. But now the policies are so strong in North America that a shipment has found its way from Europe uh, to Canada. And Mark was saying it's a good opportunity for Australia to maybe to jump on board here. Do you think we'll, there'll be a day when we do see our own biodiesel crushing plant here in Australia? Well, we have crushing facilities for canola, where they crush the canola into oil and meal. The From a biodiesel, so biofuel perspective, for road transport, well, our population is quite small, so we'd have to rely on the export market. And the challenge there is, if we want to send it to the export market, we're going to be sending it to countries who also want to support their own local industries by, by, by having a biofuel manufacturing uh, industry. Uh, one way around that is on the sustainable aviation fuel side of things, where there's new demand coming online. And from my understanding, there is work there, in the pipeline. There are projects on both the west and east coast to see some uh, demand for sustainable aviation fuel. It's the same concept. You get vegetable oil, you mix it with fossil fuel, and when you burn it, there's less emissions. So uh, from that perspective, it's a similar concept, uh, and, and there may be some more demand in the future. It would be good to insulate our local demand away from international markets by doing that. So, Dennis, how long is this set of circumstances for canola going to continue? Because Mark was saying he sold some canola this week for Mm. around about $800 a tonne. So how long are we looking at those sort of figures? Yeah, look, I'll be honest. I was expecting those prices more towards the end of the year. If you look at what the situation is now, you have South America, so Brazil, that's just harvested a record soy crop and they're trying to move it to the export markets. You have the US that's just starting to harvest their soybean crop and they're going to be moving that to the export markets. And you have Europe that's just harvested. You have even Ukraine that's part of the way through harvesting its crop. So right now, it seems like there's kind of this abundance of oil seeds. So my thinking was that it's meant to be more supportive towards year end as opposed to right now, because as you move to year-end, yes, you have a smaller Canadian crop compared to last year, you have a smaller Australian crop compared to last year, and you have that new crush capacity coming online in early 2024. And imagine if you're a grain trader in Canada somewhere, usually you try to get that canola out of the country towards year-end, but now you're thinking, okay, maybe I'll wait a little bit until early 2024 uh, because I know there's going to be more domestic demand. So it, it surprised me a bit how strong canola prices have been now. Yeah, maybe they're taking into account that Canadian crop is, is deteriorating, uh, but I was expecting this more towards year-end. Mm. So is there a bit more in it. I mean, we, we did see, as Mark was saying also, you know, $1,200 for canola at the start of the Ukraine war. So are we heading that way? Yeah, look, I, I think uh, as, as opposed to saying more in it, it's more, in my mind, it's more of a displacement of when we should have seen these pricing. Uh, if we look at that $1,200 per tonne 
uh, oh, East Coast was a track price, here is a free install price. That was around for very a very small moment of time. You got to remember that back then, Russia was invading Ukraine. The world thought that, oh God, where are we get our where, where are we going to get our sun seed supply from? Where are we get our canola seed supply from? Because Russia and Ukraine accounted for a large proportion of that export market, and the world was afraid that not only will they not get Ukrainian exports, but they also won't get Russian exports, which didn't end up being the case. Ukraine's continued to export. Russia's continued to export. So I don't think the market has that fear factor in it that would bring it to those high pricing. Um, but certainly the, the environment we're seeing right now is, yeah, it, it's a good price environment uh, for canola. Why is it usually that the price of non-GM canola is higher than GM canola? Uh, it, it all depends on how production in Europe goes versus Canada. If Europe has a really poor crop, well, they're the largest producer of non-GM canola in the world, and that means the price of non-GM is going to go higher. Uh, if Canada has a really poor crop and there's not enough GM canola around, that spread starts to close up. So mm. if, there, if there's not enough GM, the price of G- non-GM canola goes up. So in Europe, if they have, for example, a drought, price of non-GM goes up, GM stays where it, has, where it is, and that spread opens up. If Europe has a phenomenal crop, but they have a lot of production. There's no reason for it to trade at a substantial premium to uh, GM canola. Now, Mark Adams was also pretty happy with the prices on offer at the moment, not only for canola, but, you know, barley, mm. now that the tariff's gone out of China, he's seen a, you know, a lift in prices there and wheat's pretty good too. How mm. do you assess, you know, where we are right now as we lead up to harvest here in Australia? Well, if you look at the barley side of things, uh, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, you have to look at, yes, China's back now, but then the question is, how long is that strong demand going to be around for? Uh, right now in China, the domestic corn price is reportedly around $600 per tonne, slightly above. And if you move Western Australia and barley to China, for, for just from back of the napkin calculations, it looks like it's just over $500 Australian per tonne into China. Uh, and that means that there is an incentive for the Chinese buyers to continue buying our barley until our price goes up to their levels. And the question is, will our barley price move towards where the corn price is or the other way around? Will the corn price have to fall? Uh, In China, they're just starting up their northern uh, region corn harvest where the majority of their corn is harvested. And when they have more domestic corn, uh, they don't actually need as much imported feed. Also, U.S. is about to start harvesting as well, so more availability and choices. Uh, Dennis, thank you for that. You're at the Newdigate Machinery Field Days today. How's the season looking in that part of WA? Yeah, it's good. Uh, From what I hear, uh, average to above average crops right now, while rainfall hasn't been as much in total as farmers were hoping, it has fallen at the right time and that's kind of saved the crop and it's looking quite good. It's interesting right now, whether you look at East Coast and West Coast, the story I kind of feel is developing is there's very poor crops and there's very good crops and there's a very short distance separating them. If you look at New South Wales, within 100 kilometres, you have absolutely poor crops and some of the best crops uh, farmers have seen in decades. So uh, I I think both on the West and East Coast, there's a really big divide and it's important to look at both where crops are doing really well and really poorly. Um, Yeah, there seems to be a lot of focus on the areas that aren't doing well, which there definitely are, especially in the northern WA cropping belt and in northern New South Wales. Uh, but there's also some crops doing phenomenally. Dennis, good to talk to you. Thanks so much for that. Thanks, Belinda. Dennis Wozniczewski, he's a senior grains analyst. He's out and about today at the Newdigate Field Days. And you'll head back there too just after half past 12. Tara DeLangraft and Sophie Johnson have set up shop there and lined up a couple of local farmers to talk you through the season in that part of WA in a little more detail. It is 24 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti.
on ABC Radio WA. The number of Varroa mite infested premises in New South Wales has now reached 250. The state's Department of Primary Industries has confirmed three new detections in Sydney, the Central Coast and the Northwest. As a result of these latest detections, the hive eradication zones have been expanded. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries is saying the goal remains to eradicate the destructive Varroa mite from Australia. The Consultative Committee on Emergency Plant Pests will be having more meetings this week to once again consider changing to a management approach. Western Australia is a long way from New South Wales, but Albany beekeeper Daniel Warren says he is still nervous. He still thinks eradication is the best option. There's always going to be a lot of critics as to how things are managed and having healthy hives destroyed because they're in a certain zone is a sad and horrible thing to happen. But really it just comes down to education and, and if people are aware of you know, what could come of not eradicating hives and the, the future living with Varroa, I think everyone would give a lot more you know, positive feedback as, as to how things are going. What do you think life could look like with managing Varroa? For me, I think the most disappointing thing would be that we haven't capitalised on our, our honey, uh, monofloral honeys and we're the last beekeeping environment on earth that doesn't have Varroa and doesn't need to use miticides and poisons to produce honey and it's just going to be a disappointment that we haven't capitalised on that and, and really showcased our honeys to the world. Yeah, just, just the fact that we're not going to be able to use organic means to manage hives. That's, that's going to be pretty disappointing. Everyone knows everyone's choice, you know, beekeeper or not, will be um, I would rather have food that's produced without chemicals than, than with and we're not going to have that choice if Faroa sets in. Daniel Warren from Ripple Farm Beekeeping in Albany on the south coast and he was talking to Sophie Johnson about what he thinks should be done to tackle the destructive Varroa mite pest that attacks bees. 26 past 12, Kim Fuster has been producing honey for about 50 years. He's based at Mushay, just north of Perth, and thinks it's time to move to management because the Varroa mite has escaped. In my opinion, the decision to continue with the eradication project should be discontinued because, as we know, it only takes one Varroa mite to begin another incursion do you feel yes, that it's gone yes. too far, Kim? Because, I mean, it seemed like it was working, that the Varroa was contained, Absolutely. it was just near Newcastle. Why Absolutely. not just take another hit and try and get rid of it? Why are you making this yes. call now? I'm listening to the New South Wales beekeepers. There's a lot of them that are, are really struggling health-wise and having their industries, their livelihood removed. We, we were prepared to take a lot of pain at the beginning because once Varroa mite gets into Australia, it's never going to leave. So we, it's an ongoing process to, con- to control it and manage it in your hive. But when there isn't any prospect at all now of containing it, the science, in my opinion, it, it doesn't reflect the, what they're doing. The science should say that eradication is not possible because of the distribution of the Varroa mite and the uncertainty of where it is. With the discovery in Kempsey. They don't know where it came from. They don't know where the, the source of all the infection is. They haven't found the, the big load. It's, it's escaped. You know, whilst as an, as an industry, we're very reluctant to throw in the towel, 
I'm listening to the New South Wales beekeepers and if I was in their position, this is what I'd do. What does that mean for the West Australian honey industry, Kim? Are we uh, somewhat protected because of the Nullarbor or do you think that it is inevitable that Varroa will turn up in WA? So the Nullarbor is our best protection since 1976 when a European honeybrood bee disease was detected on the east coast uh, there hasn't been any honey or beekeeping equipment or bees entering entering western australia unless under a quarantine permit system that has kept out the european fowl brood varroa is a considerably different and a lot hardier pest because it travels on bees so that's its main method of spreading is to attach itself to a bee the bee will fly to a flower it will hop off that flower and then another bee will come along and it'll hop on from another colony and it'll go like that and then it only takes one female varroa mite to get into a colony and then it starts all over again the likelihood of an interstate truck driver going through a swarm of bees or several swarms of bees in the springtime or during the summertime in the east coast is highly likely the varroa mite will be attached to the body of the vehicle in the radiator on the windscreen and then of course a few will fall off but it can enter western australia quite simply just stuck on the windscreen or in the radiator of a, of a truck or even on people's clothing kim for you as a honey producer and someone who operates in several export markets one of the really important things for you is having an organic status if what you're yeah. saying comes to fruition where there is this inevitable move to management and then there is this inevitable spread of varroa into WA, what does that mean for the management of your hives and that organic status that is particularly important to you? So the treatment of varroa mite, thankfully, has, has been improved over the last 50 years since varroa mite has been a, a pest in European honeybees. So there's, there's lots of ways that we can continue to be organic and our honey continue to be clean and green without having to resort to chemicals, harsh chemicals. Look, it's one of those things you, don't, you, you never would want to do, but the, the fact is that everywhere else in the world has been doing that for the last at least 20 years. The biggest loss to the Western Australian industry is the, is the complete loss of all the feral colonies in the, in the state which, well, you say they're feral, so they shouldn't be there, but those feral colonies do a lot of pre-pollination for our industries, our horticultural industries, and once they are gone, then the free pollination from those is no longer there. So the horticultural industries, they'll be forced to pay for pollination. Michelle-based beekeeper Kim Fuster speaking to Joe Prendergast. And if you want to check out the online story, you can do that now. It went up just a little while ago. Search ABC Rural. Uh, go to the homepage and I'm just having a look at it now. It's the second story from the top. So easy to find. Just go ABC Rural in your search engine and you'll be on the ABC Rural homepage for that online story. 28 to 1, Tabarak al in the studio with the news headlines. In the headlines, the Treasurer Jim Chalmers says the Australian economy remains steady and sturdy as it faces unrelenting pressure. Australia's economy has expanded by 0.4% in the June quarter and by 2.1% over the year on a seasonally adjusted basis. Mr Chalmers says despite high interest rates, inflation and global uncertainty, economic growth has held up well. A leading expert in concussion says a Senate report will be a landmark moment for Australia if its recommendations are acted on. 
The inquiry into concussions and repeated head trauma in contact sports has recommended the government develop a national strategy to reduce concussions. It also recommends the government set up a national sports injury database as a matter of urgency. And the US Special Envoy for Global Food Security says Australia's leadership is needed to help tackle global hunger. The crisis has been exacerbated by supply chain disruption from the COVID pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, high fertiliser prices and low grain supplies on hand. More news at one. Tabarak, thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. It is 27 to 1. Still to come between now and the news at one, it's off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. And we'll also take a look at how the crops are faring in parts of Western Australia's grain-growing region. Uh, taking a look at WA's eastern wheat belt, where the crops seem to be holding up surprisingly well. And then you'll head out to Newtigate. The field day is on today. So Tara DeLangraft and Sophie Johnson have set up the ABC kit and a couple of farmers coming over to chat to you about how things are looking around the Newtigate region. 27 to 1, and it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Who's on deck today? Hello. Yeah, you've got Joey. Hey, uh, Joey. Thought it might be you. Thank yeah, you for being there. Uh, how's it looking around the Southwest Land Division? Have those fronts finished or we're still going with those that series of fronts? Well, the front that we've got now is still kind of going. Um, it's certainly um, having a presence around that Esperance Coast. There's some pretty decent falls around there this morning. and But as it pushes inland, there's not as much. So, um, like, Newtigate's just getting a little bit now and before it pushes out to the east. But... Uh, then we have this high-pressure ridge uh, that pushes in and things are going to get quite cold uh, tomorrow morning. So number of locations may get to zero or minus one. So those locations include uh, Meriden, Corrigan, uh, Collie, uh, Cunderdon and actually Newtigate may get to around zero degrees uh, tomorrow morning. So uh, yeah, there's certainly a bit of a frost risk as that high moves over. Um, on Friday, things will warm up. We have a, a west coast trough forming, so uh, things are basically rain-free throughout the state. Uh, but we do have another front on Saturday, and I think I was highlighting that it's a, a weak front yesterday, but there were some models saying that we could get a little bit more. Um, unfortunately, the models that were saying we're going to get a little bit more rain out of that front are looking like um, not as good as yesterday. So... Um, at this stage, uh, it's more likely it's going to be quite a weak front bell that moves over the southwest and, and only a mill or two may reach uh, you know, the Great Southern and, and southern parts of the wheat belt, um, but uh, that, that's about it. Um, but we do have another front that's um, looking a little bit more significant next week around Tuesday, Wednesday. A lot of uncertainty, but it's certainly uh, looking more significant and it's got the potential to push a little bit more shower activity in Lambell. And in northern and eastern parts, is it pretty much the same as yesterday? Pretty much the same as yesterday, apart from uh, one change as this high moves in, uh, we're going to get some quite fresh and gusty uh, southeasterly winds surge through, you know, the northern and central parts. So um, there is the potential for for that to push the fires that are going uh, on at the moment um, in uh, a bit a bit of a quicker movement. So uh, so that's the biggest change there, Bell. And any warnings today? Yeah, we do have a raft of strong wind warnings in the wake of that front along the whole south coast. So uh, the the Bunbury Coast, Geograph, 
uh, Coast, uh, Albany, the Esperance and the Eucla, and we also have a strong wind warning for the Ningaloo Coastal Waters, Bell. Thank you so much, Joey. 23 to 1. Let's check the rainfall figures with Richard Hudson. Nothing at all in the northern and eastern forecast districts again, which is normal, I suppose, at this time of year. But in the southwest land division forecast districts, very hit and miss. In the central west, lots of places had between one and four mils. Nabawar had seven mils over four days, and Waradaji East was the only one to have a genuine amount in the last 24 hours, and that was only five mils. And then in the lower west, a fair bit more. Ancatel 10, Araluan 17, Bickley 11, Bungendore 21, Chidlow 6, Dwelling Up and Gidgigan Up recorded 10, Gleneagle 9, Huntley 13, Jandicott 8, Jaredale had between 10 and 13 across a couple of rain gauges, Carnot 9, Carrigallon North 10, Mandurah 5, Millenden 11, Mount Solis 6, Mirshay 7, Pinjara had 6 to 14, Serpentine 9, Wanneroo, Werribee and Whiteman Park all recorded 6. And then in the southwest it was a similar story, Acton Park 8, Bailing up 5, Beetle up 20, Boyan up north, Bridgetown and Cape Lewin recorded 5, Carlotta and Chapman Hill 8, Collie 5, Kawaram up 8, Darden up at one of the Deepherd stations recorded 5, Donnybrook, five to seven mils. Four Acres, eight. Hentybrook and Jarrowwood, five. Jindong, six. Carriedale, five. Lowbrook, seven. Manjamup had nine to 11 mils. Margaret River, 21. McAlinden, five. Mount William, 11. Nanup, seven. Newbicup, five. Northcliffe, 22. Quinnan up, 10. Ravenscliff Alert Station, seven. Rosabrook, 12. Shannon, 21. Thompson Brook and Vass recorded five. Walpole Forestry, 20. Warner Glen, seven. Willie Abrup, five. Windy Harbour, 11. Worsley Downs, six. And Yanmar had 11. A bit less in the southern coastal region, Albany had 6 to 10 mils, Chesalon 9, Denmark 14, Esperance 22, Many Peaks 6, Mount Barker 7, Munglin up west and Ongar up north, both recorded 5, Ravensthorpe 6, Stirlings north had 7, and Stirlings south where Mark Adams farms, who you heard from in the first half, only 3 mils just because of the rivalry between those two, you know. Tamar, 10, Tolina down, 6, and the Duke had 18. And then in the central wheat belt, fair bit less. Lots of places had between 1 and 4 mils. Above that, it was only Northern with 5 and Quadney, 7. And then in the Great Southern region, Badgebup, 5, Boddington North, 5, uh, Cranbrook, 6, Cranham, 5, Culford, 9, Franklin, 9, Hillcroft, Narragin, Pingley West, Tamblup and Tunney all recorded five. Wandering had 12, Wilgarra six. And then Newdigate, where we're going to soon, only had the two mills. And I think Meriden only had a couple of mills as well. Great. Thank you for that, Richard. Uh, 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And yes, heading to Newdigate very shortly, catching up with Tara and Sophie and a couple of farmers they've convinced to come and talk to you today. But first we're going to call in to WA's Eastern Wheat Belt where, well, the crops that established earlier in the season in this part of the grain growing area are holding on surprisingly well despite the dry weather. But Meriden agronomist Dave Keamy doesn't think late sowings will amount to much. It's really a tale of two seasons. The paddocks at that went in April, 
you know, where it was wet and warm. This really are hanging in there. Don't know how, but a lot of them are looking pretty good. Whereas anything that went uh, in later, where it was semi-dry, we've had staggered germinations, uh, didn't come up for three weeks. We're really starting to see up the rows now. They're, all those late crops are starting to drop tillers and and not looking all that healthy. But um, the early uh, canola, barley, some of the early wheat has still got a lot of promise. Even the really good stuff will probably need double figures uh, to finish for sure. You know, we need two or three rains on the later stuff to get decent weight and, uh, and decent sized grain. And what's the uh, deadline for that rain? Uh, yeah, if we don't get rain in, in probably two or three weeks, they're just going to drop more and more tillers and we'll only end up with you know, one tiller per plant if we don't get something shortly. The bulk is just, is just disappearing every day. And when you drive past paddocks, you know, you're starting to see the ground in between the rows, whereas, you know, normally, you know, the bulk's all still there and nice and fresh. But, yeah, no, it's not looking uh, magnificent by any stretch, mate. Have any of your clients decided to just put a full stop on some of their crops and have a go next year? Well, um, yeah, um, they have listened to this. A few fairly late crops, a lot of them had big stubble, so a lot of the chemical had trouble hitting the ground and things like that, you know, there's massive stubble from last year. And there's some patches of, of rye grass and barley grass, and those patches, well, they're not going to be harvested anyway, so we'll just rip in and do, you know, 30 hectares here, 20 hectares there, and just, just take the lot out. So at least the paddock will be even again, if you like, even in in brackets um, for for next season. Is there any moisture to retain in the soil? Oh no, no, no. That it it, it won't be for moisture retention. <laughs> so it's no. just about weed control. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, that is uh, painful. Well, it is because all the dollars have gone in everything else, and the uh, the season just hasn't been playing the game. Meriden agronomist David Kimi speaking to Lucinda Jose. 17 to 1. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, it feels like around about 6 degrees. The wind is blowing and the donuts are cooking. And that can only mean one thing. The field days are on at Newdigate, 380 kilometres southeast of Perth. Despite the cold weather, thousands have turned up for day one of the field days, including our reporters Tara DeLandgraft and Sophie Johnson. TDL, I know you are a big fan of the donuts at Newdigate and I see that you have a front row seat this year. We do have a front row seat this year, Bill. Uh, we can literally, I can put my arm out and touch the donut uh, stand if, if I could turn that way because as you say, it's... It's very, very windy, so we're uh, sort of in a little bit of a, an alleyway, Sophie and I, with a couple of farmers here sort of sheltering from this weather. As you mentioned, it, it has been quite cold, which we sort of expect at the Newdigate Field Days, um, and we certainly heard the, the Weather Bureau mention those cold temperatures overnight, but Sophie has been warming herself up. You had your first donut, Sophie? I did. I had my first Newdigate Field Day donut, and it did live up to the hype. Tara was banging on about how good they were, and 
Luckily, we were right nearby to go get one, and oh. it was delicious and warm and just what I needed. Oh, look, and I've spent a lot of time, um, you know, waiting for parents at this donut stall. Um, even spent a little bit of time learning how to use the really strange contraptions and one of our farmers, Bryce Sinclair, is sitting here going, I know exactly how you feel, Tara, because I've done exactly the same thing. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an institution here at Newdigate and, I mean, the field days have now been going for over five decades here and, you know, we've been looking around and despite, as Belinda said, that weather, there, there is still a pretty good turnout, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And, look, the sun's shining now, so what's not to love? Just hiding from the wind, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, let's have a meet uh, our farmers in front of us here. I mentioned Bryce Sinclair, who farms locally, and also Bob Ifler as well, who's uh, been farming here for, we'll find out exactly how many years, Bob, because um, it's 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 a, a few decades more than, um, than I can remember. But Bryce, I suppose if we start with you, um, the weather we're having now and the weather we had overnight, I think it got down to zero degrees. We often do see a little bit of a frost around Newdigate Field Day's time. I mean, how, how have things looked this morning? Did you have a bit of a look outside? No, I was up early enough this morning to see if there was much frost around and it was minor to nearly non-existent pretty much. So good result. Um, but yeah, it's this time of year always looking at the weather and forecast of if there's something cold coming up or another rain or something like that, or even hot weather is what the last thing we're really wanting at the moment as well. So yeah, yeah. and there was a bit of that last week, wasn't there? Yeah, it was definitely um, down to shorts weather again, which was a bit earlier than usual, I, I think. So yeah. <laughs> Overall, how has season 2023 been weather-wise for you? Um, I'd say the season this year's been really up and down a lot. We came out of a nice dry summer with minimal summer spraying and then at the end of end of March into April we got some really good rains through here that got a lot of the feed going, a lot of early crops, early canolas got in and away and then it just dried out until it was very dry until basically the end of May, start of June and then we got nice and wet again but the temps just got bitterly cold through then, crops were really slow, um, they were wet and cold and um, and it stayed wet for a while and then it started to dry out again. And then we've had more follow-up rains later on and things have taken off again. And then, um, yeah, a few dribs and drabs of rain the last few days have been probably not making the season, but keeping things ticking along pretty nicely to, to say we're probably looking, I think at the moment, average, mm. average sort of season in the yields at the moment. Mm. Um, pastures and sheep feed are very good now and have come along. And the crops are sort of, a lot of crops starting to push out in the head now and, yeah, looking, looking decent. Yeah, I couldn't believe it actually when um, I saw the Weather Bureau put out that it was one of the warmest winters on record because it certainly hasn't felt so much so. Um, Bob Ifler, we'll come to you and talk about sort of what you've seen so far this season. How many years have you been farming here, Bob? Tell us. <laughs> well, um, making, you're making me feel old here, Tara. <laughs> so, um, yeah, about, about 60 years I've been been in Newdigate and uh, first started working in Newdigate for, for farmers and um, and then eventually got my own farm as you know but um, yeah no it's about 60 years so I've been here so I'm going to and old. and how does the weather rate this year I suppose looking at the last few months are you sort of similar to Bryce it's been a bit up and down yeah it has been a bit up and down and I think the um, season is looking quite reasonable I think it'd probably be average around average you know if we, especially if we get another rain Need another rain uh, in this this month, and um, I guess compared with years ago, it just seems to be much the same. We've had the the dry dry times and the wet times, and um, 
that seems to be a thing that seems to happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Bryce, you mentioned um, sheep feed. You're here at the Newtigate Field Days heading up the Hoggett competition. How are the sheep looking around the district at the moment? Um, generally, all the sheep in the area are very good. There's a lot of, lot of farmers out here that have a good portion of crop and pasture. So sheep come out of summer off good stubbles. And with, the, with that March, late March rain that we got, feed took off. So the sheep are all in very good condition, like lambs are sappy and that sort of thing. It's just, yeah, everything looks generally pretty good in the livestock side of things. Looks good from the actual physical side. Out in the paddock it looks good. It looks good out in the paddock, as yeah. you say. Uh, not quite so much so when you look at wool prices, when you look at lamb prices. No, it's sort of a bit, bit of a kick in the bum. You know, everyone's got these good, great animals out there and um, unfortunately they're probably as good or better than last year and they're... They're not even worth half as much as last year, which is disappointing, you know, the, the same thing and half the price and everyone's done everything the same, done it well. And, um, yeah, there's just not, not the reward there that there probably should be. Yeah, and and we know if the federal government is re-elected, there's obviously that, that looming potential ec- live export ban as well. I mean, what do you do? Do you just keep on keeping on? Is that all you can do? Um. I think there's a lot of people that are looking at the way they're running their sheep now, like going, people are pushing more into crossbred lambs or staying with merinos and earlier maturing merinos that they can sell off as um, sucker lambs or that are big enough to kill when they're young rather than running them out as to older sheep. Um, unfortunately, it's sheep in our system for our farming practices are super important. They help with weed management setups of pastures and nitrogen fixing and that sort of thing so we don't want to go away but we'll we certainly have to look at it at in in a little little way because at the moment grain prices are brilliant Mm. sheep prices aren't um and it's it's a business decision you've got to make and um we're we're farming because we enjoy it but there also needs to be a dollar at the end of the day and if it's not there you're going to do the thing that does make a dollar now, Bob, you're a sheep producer as well, and by this point in your farming career, you've seen plenty of ups and downs. How does the current environment stack up against everything else that you've seen before? Oh, we have seen things fairly bad before, and we sort of always get out of them, um, but uh, usually get a bit bruised on the way. And I guess um, with a flock reduction scheme a few years ago, um, when we had to go and shoot them on the farms, that was pretty devastating. But um, we hope we don't have to get down to that stage at this time. Our biggest problem, I think, at the moment is killing space. And, um, uh, and there's a lot of people, including us, that uh, can't get rid of our last, a lot of our last year's sheep. Lambs, yeah. Yeah, so there's a few challenges at the moment, but you've had your fair share of challenges in the past. What have you learnt from, from those? Oh, not to panic and make big rush decisions, uh, rash decisions, because... Um, uh, it usually just turns around pretty quick again anyway, so it's just, uh, you know, for a year or two, it's just a real pain in the bum, you know, but um, you get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Bryce, we're here at the Machinery Field Days. I mean, have you been having a bit of a look around? Are there a few things that, that you go, oh, they look a bit shiny and a bit, you know, a bit special? Oh, there's lots of gear that looks shiny that I would really like to have in my shed <laughs> as well. But um, it's, I haven't really had much of a look around. Generally, I get more of a look around the days before the field day when we're setting up, and then we, everyone seems to be on deck with duties and rosters and that during the field day, but I reckon I'll get a bit of time later and have a spin around and check out a lot of the gear. But there's 
gee, there's some impressive gear here, sort of thing. But um, yeah, I can't take it all home. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I bet machinery and technology have evolved quite a bit, Bob, for you since you started farming. Oh, it definitely has. I remember the um, some of the gear I first uh, drove and. We used to sit on a tractor out in the freezing cold and um, no cabs on and uh, used to pull a plough that was about uh, three, three or four metres wide. And, um, and now today, you know, things have changed so much. You've got beautiful, comfortable tractors with air conditioning, a really lovely, lovely thing to drive. Um, and, and great big wide seaters of, you know, 80 or 90 feet wide now, today. And, and I guess um, one of the biggest changes, I guess, is chemicals. Chemicals and, and no-till have uh, made a huge difference to farming today. And um, if we had to go through what we had to go, what we had to do years ago without chemicals, well, then um, we, we'd be in stock today. Yeah. What would you say has been the biggest game changer in terms of machinery and technology over the years? I think it's different, it's different varieties. Uh, there's been a lot of a lot of research done, and, and we seem to be able to grow crops on a lot less rain than we, or better crops today, with the same amount of rain that we used to have, and um, and even less rain. I think that's uh, that's been a great change. Um, we've also uh, f- found that um, with the, with the tractors and things, we've got GPSs and all sorts of things that that uh, make it just so easy to, easy to drive. Anyone can drive them and. Uh, we actually employ just about as many women on our farm as what we do men today because the hard, the hard work in farming, is most of it's gone. I bet it must be quite, must have been quite challenging without the air con back in the days. I can't even <laughs> imagine, <laughs> especially in newdigatable places. No, it used to be pretty cold, especially when it started raining and um, out on the tractor and you wished you were... Wish you had a, a coat with you and you didn't bring one. That makes it very <laughs> challenging. Yeah, for sure. And so I guess, Bob, in terms of even the cropping side of things, how have things changed over the years for you? Oh, well, we just have to go over. We have to, obviously, uh, with chemicals, um, we have to all spray all the, the weeds out first but um, and then you just direct drill it in. It's um, it, it's really is quite... It's a big change <laughs> What we used to do was plough the ground first and then we'd have to wait about two to, two to three weeks um, afterwards for the weeds to come through and then we'd have to work it back with, with another machine and, uh, and then we'd finally seed it after the next rain and so the, the procedure was you know, so, or, you know, about two, two months long. Now it's only about one month long at the most and, yeah, no, it's so different and we put so many more hectares in than we used to do. Yeah, when I first come to Newtigate, um, a, a big farm was someone that had about, um, would crop about 800 hectares. That was probably the biggest farm in the area. Now, you know, there's a lot of people doing, doing you know, 10, 12,000 hectares. Yeah. Now, um, if we turn our attention slightly back to the weather of sorts, we can't be in Newtigate the day after the grand final without talking about the drought, the 30-year Newdigate Lions drought of a premiership. Bryce, you were there uh, playing your part on the weekend. I heard you um, had a pretty spectacular boundary throw-in. I, I did get a mention, but the drought isn't that long. <laughs> they did win a flag in 16. Oh, 16. Yeah. So, um, it was the kids that was 30 it's, it's, years, it's wasn't it? That's that, right. I don't think they'd actually won the flag before. And Amazing. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's a pretty nice photo going around of the... The league boys and the kids all with their medals and 
and that celebrating it's it's a cracker. But yeah, no, I, did, I got I think I got to mention um, with my prowess of uh, boundary throw-ins on the weekend, just happened to be right out the front of the um, the bar. So, but I I am very confident that I got a bigger cheer than the whole football team did <laughs> after my little accident. So. We did hear that. We did hear that. And look, thank you so much for joining us on the Country Hour today, Bryce Sinclair and Bob Ifler. Bob's just uh, released a book on his memoirs, Sophie. He has, he has. And he's selling it here today at the New Degate Field Day as well. So Something um, to go and have a look at after we get tucked into some more donuts, I think, because they're wafting this way, that smell. So I think we should um, head out and have some more. Belinda, we're going to have to leave you there because we're both salivating and that's not going to look good on our <laughs> Uh, on our OB kit, I don't think. So back Not to you. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Tara DeLangraft, uh, Sophie Johnson at the Newdigate Field Days today, 380 kilometres southeast of Perth and catching up with Bob Ifler and Bryce Sinclair, who um, was a star of the show, sounds like it, in that uh, football match. And it's three minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Weather Wally says the bomb has committed the ultimate sin by mentioning the F word in September. No, no, no. Don't need that tomorrow morning. And 29 degrees apparently forecast for Newdigate on Tuesday. So a little bit of everything by the looks uh, happening in Newdigate. Two minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The former leader of the Proud Boys sentenced to 22 years in prison for his part in the January 6th US Capitol riot. Only in emergency, Tasmania's health department tells people to stay away from the state's two largest public hospitals. And turmoil off the pitch. The coach of the Spanish women's football team is sacked despite the World Cup victory. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. About a minute and a half to the news at one and then you'll get stuck into those stories just previewed on The World Today. Right now, let's see how the sheep were selling at the Gatanning Market today. 5,958 sheep and lambs were yarded for sale today, and that is 800 less than last week, and the prices eased. Tracy Kilner, hello. How was the yarding today? The yarding was again dominated by mutton, with the prices trending down with demand. Processors paid $70 for quality heavy ewes carrying a fleece. No new, new season lamb was yarded this week, while the old season lamb eased with plain lamb selling to minimal values and the best heavy lamb made up to $97 a head. Lightweight old season lamb sold to $17, heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made from $10 to $50. Trade weight lamb eased selling from 10 to 72 and a good lineup of heavy lamb sold to $97 a head. Store use made from under $10 to $26 a head. Medium weights sold from 20 to 61 with a fleece. And a quality yarding of heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight returned $35 to $70. Ram lambs made from $30 to $65. And mature rams sold from $10 to $30 a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through the yarding and the prices at Catanning today. Tomorrow, calling into Mount Barker and checking out how the cattle were selling. I'll catch you tomorrow. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.